to episode 21 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your Broke as a Joke host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. This time around, I am covering three, yes, three episodes from season two. First up is episode 15, Blind Tiger, and then episode 16, Bored She Hung Herself, and finally, episode 17, Run Johnny Run. Now, I am still doing sound clips the old Radio Boombox way, so you're probably going to hear background noise when I play them. That's just my life. I live in a loud house with loud people, and as much as I wish I had a soundproof room in order to do these podcasts, I don't. We all must endure as best we can. So on that note, let's go to Hawaii. Season 2, Episode 15, Blind Tiger, air date December 31st, 1969. Happy New Year. Directed by Abner Biberman, this is number 4 of 5 for him. Story by Jerome Coopersmith and William Robert Yates, and teleplay by Jerome Coopersmith. This is the second of two for William Robert Yates, and the fourth of 32 for Jerome Coopersmith. Outside Iolani Palace, Steve pays a young kid by the name of Poto to wash his windshield before heading inside. Poto does, but he's not the only one interested in Steve's car. Poto catches a man raising the hood on the car, and when he asks what he's doing, the man tells him that he's working on it for McGarrett. Poto tells him not to mess up the windshield doing it. Once Poto leaves, the man plants some dynamite. In the office, Steve walks into a surprise birthday party. The 5-0 team, along with Jenny, another secretary, and the governor are there. He's gifted with a load of presents, which he carries to his car at the end of the night, dropping one on the sidewalk, which Dano points out. Steve places the load of gifts in his car before going back for the dropped present. As he does so, the car door shuts, setting off the dynamite. The explosion throws Steve some distance, and Dano runs to his aid. Steve complains about pain in his head and he can't see. Dano sticks close as Steve is examined at the hospital. After Steve has his x-rays, Danny informs him of everything that's going on and how he'll be running the investigation and protecting Steve. Meanwhile, Chinho and Kono are working the crime scene, combing for witnesses and gathering forensic evidence. 
Chaefong suspects dynamite, but there's not much real evidence. His assistant finds some metal tubing that doesn't belong with the car, and that allows Chaefong to reconstruct how the bomb was detonated, which he demonstrates to Danny. Danny returns to the hospital to inform Steve of the developments, unaware that the bomber they're looking for is lurking nearby. Steve is introduced to Nurse Lavallo. Due to a slight hemorrhage in the ocular region, there is no guarantee that Steve will completely regain his sight, and Nurse Lavallo will help him cope with that. He'll need to remain at the hospital for observation to see how his condition is progressing. Steve refuses as he has a case to work and demands help in order to leave. Nurse Lavallo tells him to do it himself, which Steve does, getting dressed and calling for a car to meet him out front. However, when it comes to leaving his room and getting downstairs, Steve can't beat the obstacle course that is the hallway, and he ends up falling in the visitor's lounge. He calls for Nurse Lavallo, who's been following him, and she tells him to get up. She then instructs him to take her elbow and explains how she will lead him back to his room before doing so. Steve and Nurse Lavallo are unaware that the bomber is watching. While Dano and Kono bust up a card game to question Jimmy about his apparently empty threats about hurting McGarrett, Steve is working from his hospital bed, snidely refusing a tool offered to him by Nurse Lavallo to help him sign some paperwork. The governor visits and silently watches the scene before announcing his presence. He then uses his authority to remove Steve from duty. Steve agrees to stay in the hospital, but as he protests being taken off duty, he accidentally breaks a vase. Steve finally agrees to accept Nurse Lavallo's help to deal with his current blindness. While Danny and Chin Ho question Sam about money for a hit, which he swears is a finder's fee on the guy who attempted to kill McGarrett, Nurse Lavallo puts Steve through the paces of using his other senses to navigate the world. Steve, being Steve, is obviously very good at it. Dano and Chin Ho question yet another suspect, a young man on probation for beating a tourist into a coma, a crime that Steve caught the guy committing mid-act. He has an alibi, though. He was at home with Mom and his probation officer. Meanwhile, Kono visits Steve at the hospital, and Steve remembers that Poto washed his windshield. Unfortunately, Poto can't find the man he saw in the mugshots. But when Che tracks down where the rods came from, Poto IDs the man's picture on the wall of a car shop. It's clear the bomber is obsessed with Steve, and he's on his way back to the hospital with more dynamite. <laughs> think it goes without saying, and it's not a spoiler, that obviously Steve regains his eyesight by the end of the episode. Otherwise, this would be a very different series. It'd be Long Street, not Hawaii Five-O. But the episode is very much a character study in watching Steve deal with this sudden disability and the uncertainty of whether or not he's going to get his eyesight back. So while we have the rest of the Five-O team going through the paces of looking for this bomber, we also have very much of the episode spent watching Steve slowly come to grips with his current blindness and then accepting help to deal with it. And the thing is, is you kind of get the inkling that it's going to be a more character-focused episode because we do start with Steve's birthday. Now Steve pulls up in front of Yolani Palace and he talks to Poto, telling him he needs to wash the whole windshield, not just the driver's side. And of course, we watch as the bomber approaches and Poto catches him and we see him rig the dynamite. So we know this is waiting for Steve when he comes back out. But Steve ends up going inside the office and walks into a surprise birthday party for him.
much, Ty. Uh, I don't know what to say. Well, just say anything. Here, boss. Oh? Some of the boys chipped in. Yeah, but not very much. And it's worth noting that while everybody is singing to Steve, Kono is playing a guitar, so it is quite a festive atmosphere. So we see just how beloved he really is when it comes to his staff, and even with the governor, since the governor is there. So there's this anticipation that's happening because we're watching this birthday party and we're watching everybody leave and wishing him happy birthday. And he's carrying this huge load of presents, which I'm guessing that he either didn't unwrap them all or they were wrapped in such a way that you just you know, take the lid off and, and you can see what you got because everything is still beautifully wrapped and most likely empty. But gorgeous work by the prop department. They are very pretty presents. So anyway, we see Steve go to his car and he drops a present on the way as Danny walks to his car. And there's a touching moment too when everybody's kind of breaking up and going home for the night and Steve does stop to thank Danny. And it's a very actually sweet, tender kind of a moment that we don't normally get during the course of most of these episodes because they're so business focused. So you have this one little moment of softness when Steve thanks Danny for the party and for the presents and everything. It's quite nice. But Steve drops one of the presents he puts everything in the car, goes back for this one present, and as he does so, the car door shuts, and that's what sets off the dynamite. If this episode was made today, they would probably need something a little more forceful to set off the dynamite, because the cars today aren't quite as heavy as the cars they were driving back in 1969. That car door half-ass slamming shut totally would have <laughs> set off dynamite. I grew up in cars like that. I got so used to slamming those doors hard to get them to shut that when I would ride in other people's cars and they had newer cars and I would like slam the door shut, they would be like, you don't have to slam the door that hard. I grew up with really heavy cars, okay? <laughs> they were made of metal. So it did not surprise me at all that the car door half shutting could set off this dynamite. But since Steve is walking away at the time uh, of the explosion, he gets thrown some distance and apparently hits his head as he does so because it causes the ocular hemorrhage. But Danny is still there to witness this explosion he comes running to Steve's aid. Steve is on fire. That kind of gets overlooked a little bit. In the hospital assessment, later he does notice that there are some burns, but Steve is on fire. And from what I can see watching the scene, and I watched it a couple of times, that's Jack Lord on fire. He's laying on his stomach and it's the back of his jacket on fire. So obviously I'm sure a ton of precautions were made, but yeah, the back of his suit jacket is on fire. Danny comes running over and smothers it. So yes, Jack Lord was momentarily on fire, but not for very long, but still worth noting. Anyway, Steve gets taken to the hospital and he gets all of these tests taken. And it's very apparent because he tells Danny he can't see and he tells the doctors that he can't see. And they, of course, are looking in his eyes and everything. The way that Jack Lord plays this blindness is quite interesting because the whole time he's riding on the gurney through the hospital and into the examining room, he keeps like opening his eyes wider and opening his mouth like he's trying to get his eyes wider. He's almost playing it like if you have ever worn contacts like I do, you get one stuck and you try to like work it around your eye without touching it and you your mouth makes all sorts of bizarre movements to get it back into place. That's kind of what it looks like. It's like he's in trying to open his eyes wider so he can see he's opening his mouth wider too. 
So it's a very interesting way to play that. And then throughout the rest of the episode, he doesn't close his eyes. You play blind that way. His eyes are wide open and he still, he blinks a lot. Like he's constantly trying to clear his eyes of the blindness. And you can tell he's not used to using his other senses because of kind of like the way he stares. So I think, in my opinion, I think Jackler did a really good job of portraying the blindness as realistic. Meanwhile, you have Chinho and Kono on the scene. Chinho is in charge, so you kind of get an uh, idea of what the hierarchy is with the 5-0 team. It goes Steve, and then Danny, and then Chinho, and then Kono. Everything under control. Good. Thanks. Kono, let's be sure everyone in the area is questioned. Everyone who was here within three hours before the blast. Right. And everyone who had business in the palace today. And get a license number every car in the area. Okay. Everything okay here? Polani, pictures of the wreck. Every angle there is, and then dream up a few. Okay. Anything? Not much. I'll have to look through a microscope to find anything here. Well, let's get every piece of this hope down to the left. It was really cool to see Chin in charge. And so that's the secondary thread, really, of the episode, is they're looking for this particular bomber. And I should mention that the bomber was actually there to see Steve get hurt, but he drove off as soon as the bomb went off because it didn't detonate the way it was supposed to. And we see him later lurking in the hospital, which adds a bit of tension to Steve's situation. Not only do they not know exactly who they're looking for, but even if they did, Steve isn't going to be able to see him coming. And so to see him in moments when Steve is at his most vulnerable, so when he's stumbling around in the hallway blind, when he falls in the visitor's area, and you can see him there in the visitor's area while Steve is like right there, the presence of danger is always there. So even as we have the rest of 5-0 going through the motions, going through the evidence, looking for potential suspects, because they really don't have much to go on. Obviously, it's somebody with a vendetta against Steve. And that's where they're focusing their energy. So that's why they go talk to Jimmy at the card game because he had just gotten out of prison. And he apparently he had been running his mouth in prison that he was going to get McGarrett. And of course, Jimmy says, well, it was all talk. And he's been at this card game all night because he keeps winning large and they won't let him leave. And then later they call in a guy named Sam. And apparently Sam wrote a check to a guy, a rather large check. And they think it was to put a hit out on McGarrett and they have the guy that got the check there and Sam is like you've got to be kidding me that I would write a check for a hit he's like this guy does work for me and he admits to basically hiring this guy to find the guy who planted the bomb in Steve's car because as he says anybody on this rock knows that if you go after McGarrett you're bringing down some serious heat so there's kind of this implication of McGarrett's untouchable in a certain sense because it will cause hell raining down upon everybody else. And then the final suspect that they talk to is a young man named Roger Masterson. They go to his mother's house and they talk to him. Now, Steve caught him beating up a tourist. And it's kind of weird because there's this, because they say that Roger Masterson, that case hasn't gone to trial yet because the tourist is in a coma. He can't testify, but Steve can because Steve literally caught him in the act of beating the hell out of this dude and so that would be motive for roger to get rid of him however roger's like no and he says that aside from his mom to give him an alibi of when he was home 
His probation officer was also there, and they were discussing vocational options for him. So either this kid has already been in trouble once and he has a flipping probation officer, which if that's true, they should have jerked his probation and put he should be sitting in jail waiting for this trial because getting arrested is usually a violation of probation. Or it's the court has already, you know, I mean, it's looking like a lock and they're already talking to a probation officer. I don't know exactly how that's shaking out, but it just seems kind of weird to me. But anyway, that provides a solid alibi for Roger. So for a big part of the episode, when it comes to suspects, 5-0 is striking out. However, Che Fong is our hero because his assistant finds the metal rod and Che manages to reconstruct how this bomb was detonated. It has to do with a spring and a nail and he, you put it in the tube and if you attach it to certain things, like you would attach it to the dynamite or the, I think they said the blasting cap, uh, which is attached to the dynamite and you attach it to certain uh, mechanisms in the car, then starting the car could set it off. In this case, it was the door slamming that set it off and it basically pulls the pin on it. The spring comes shooting out. It hits the dynamite or the blasting cap and it detonates the dynamite. So it's actually quite clever because there's no other mechanics, there's no timing device, there's no no other mechanism that could set it off, which on one hand makes it kind of clever because it's totally dependent on whenever McGarrett gets in the car, you don't have to worry about a timing device or a detonator, uh, a remote detonator of any kind. So it, it lessens the likelihood of there being a miss. However, there was a miss. But it still, it was really neat to see Che Fong recreate this. So we get some nice late 1969 forensics in action. And it turns out that when they finally track down where the rod came from, or what the rod's made of, which narrows down where it came from, that ends up leading them to the bomber, whom Poto later identifies. Meanwhile, you have Steve in the hospital coping with his current condition. And the doctor explains to him, because it's an ocular hemorrhage, he may not regain his sight, he may regain part of his sight, or he may completely regain his sight. Right now they don't know, but the fact that he can see light is very encouraging. And, and he wants Steve to stay in the hospital for a few days for observation so they can monitor his condition. And Steve is absolutely like, nope, I have a case to work. I have to do my job and demands that the officer on the door come and get his clothes. Well, Nurse Lavallo is there. And Nurse Silvalo is played by Marion Ross, and she is absolutely amazing in this episode. Absolutely amazing. But she's been brought in to help Steve cope with this, and Steve wants nothing to do with her. He just wants to leave, and so she's like, yeah, get your own clothes, get your own car, and get yourself downstairs all by yourself. Obviously, Mr. McGarrett can't accept the reality of his situation. Until he does, no one can help him. She is badass. She's hardcore. She isn't going to take anybody's shit, not even McGarrett's. And it's kind of nice to see her like this and to see her coming up against Steve like this because right now the traits that tend to make Steve a very dogged police officer, being stubborn, being tenacious, being a little bit pig-headed, they are the exact things that are holding him back from dealing with his blindness. 
And it isn't until he falls in the visitor's room that he reluctantly admits that he needs to stay in the hospital, but he figures he can still work from bed, and that's what he's doing. Jenny's bringing him memos to sign and things like that, and he insists on signing him without this cute little tool that Nurse Lavallo gives to him. He's like, you know, he's very much so, I don't need this very specific help. I can continue to work even though I can't see. I can. I don't need any accommodations. He's being very stubborn about it. And it's not until the governor basically says, yeah, no, you're going to work with the doctors and you're not going to work this case because you need to, to focus on getting well. And while Steve reluctantly agrees that he will work with the doctors, but he, when he's trying to insist that he can work, he goes to put the phone, which has been sitting on like the bedside table in front of him, to the table next to him. And when he does, he hits a vase and breaks it. Now, this is not like, this is one of the big old rotary phones, which is how he was able to call for a car because he could feel on the dial where the zero was so he could get a hold of the operator. Anyway, it's when he breaks that vase and the governor is like, yeah, goodbye, Steve, and leaves. He realizes he really doesn't have a choice and that he's going to have to accept Nurse Lavallo's help. And so quite a bit of the episode is spent with Nurse Lavallo and Steve while he's learning how to rely on his other senses, which you think might be a bit of filler or might be just to show how great Steve is because he, he goes through the paces. She's, she's walking him through the hallways and asking him to identify things that he um, hears, feels, and smells. And so he's like, this is the elevator. Something passed in front of us. It was a person in a wheelchair. And he doesn't give everything right, but he does get a lot of things right. And Nurse Lavallo praises him when he does well and corrects him when he's wrong. And you can see her kind of taking a little bit of pride in the fact that Steve is doing so well and throwing himself into it. There's one scene where he does make it to the visitor's room again, and he identifies that one woman is wearing perfume, and even blind, he still manages to hit on this lady by saying she must be quite a woman. And then he uh, identifies finally that he smells something sweet, and he finally identifies it as bubblegum. And then he also, because the officer has been following them the entire time, he realizes eventually that the officer has stopped following them and now it's Kono. And it's very sweet because Kono was bringing him Lomi Lomi as well as some information. But it was a very sweet visit from Kono. So we see Steve go through all of this and it turns out that him using his senses and memory retention is what I think Nurse Lavallo says, serves him in the end. So this was more than just a PSA about how people end up coping with blindness and especially traumatic blindness that occurs suddenly. There is actually a plot motivation for this. And we also get to see Nurse Lavallo soften a little bit towards Steve, which is expected. He is pig-headed and stubborn, but he's also a very caring, kind man under all of that pursuit for justice. And when he does throw himself into something, he does it full body. So there's a lot about Steve that is attractive. And we see Nurse Lavallo kind of get a little sweet on him. At one point when she brings him his meal and points out where everything is, he asks if she's wearing perfume. And she said, oh, it's just a little cologne I use to freshen up. And he's like, don't be embarrassed. It's very nice. And she's just like, eat your asparagus. And she leaves. And so it's a very sweet little moment unfortunately, in the presence of Danny and Jin Ho. And there's kind of this implication that Nurse Lavallo is plain, which 
Like I said, it's Marion Ross. It's impossible to make her plain. She's gorgeous. But she was pretty enough for him in a way that he would notice because he's blind. She can't throw on some red lipstick. The perfume was kind of how she was pretty enough for him. So it was kind of a nice, subtle way of showing that perhaps her interest in him was becoming a little bit more than professional, which leads to it being a very bittersweet ending for the two of them. And the ending, without giving any spoilers, does culminate at the hospital. We finally put a name to the bomber, and the bomber finally takes his second chance at Steve. And it's explosive, but not in the way that you think. Our guest cast will absolutely cure what ails you, so let's take a quick look at them. As I said, Edith Lavallo was played by Marion Ross. We'll see her in one more episode. She has 194 credits going back to 1953, but she is probably best known as Marion Cunningham on Happy Days. She was also Nora on Life with Father, Susan on The Gertrude Berg Show, Miss Broomfield on Mr. Novak, Mary Morgan on Paradise Bay, Emily Hayward Steubing on The Love Boat, Sophia Berger on Brooklyn Bridge, Grandma Foreman on That 70s Show, Beulah Carey on The Drew Carey Show, Marilyn Gilmore on The Gilmore Girls, and she was the voices of Grandma Squarepants on SpongeBob and Mrs. Lopart on Handy Manny. She was also on the TV shows Father Knows Best, Outer Limits, The Brady Bunch, Mod Squad, Ironside, Mannix, Emergency, Fantasy Island, Night Court, MacGyver, Love Boat the Next Wave, Touched by an Angel, The Middle, and Hot in Cleveland. She turned up in the movies Angels on Tap, The Superhero Movie, The Evening Star, Operation Petticoat, Teacher's Pet, and Lizzie. And she was in the TV movies Survival of Dana, Skyward, Midnight Offerings, Sins of the Father, Hidden Silence, The Lake, and A Perfect Christmas List. Masterson was played by Robert Edwards. We'll see him in one more episode. He was also in an episode of Marcus Welby, M.D. Dr. Rackman was played by Robert Gleason. This is the second of five episodes for him. We also saw him in the previous episode, Which Way Did They Go? Che Fong was played by Harry Indo. We've seen him previously, but this is his first episode as Che Fong. He was also in Rich Man, Poor Man, Book 2, Murder, She Wrote, Magnum P.I., and Jake and the Fat Man. And he was in the TV movies Codenamed Diamond Head. And he also reprised his role as Che Fong in the 1997 TV movie Hawaii Five-O. Nurse Feinberg was Suzanne Carney. She played OR nurse Janet on ER. She also turned up in Taxi, Gabriel's Fire, and Pacific Blue. She was in the movies Dead Dogs, What's Cooking, and Double Bang. And she was in the TV movies These Old Broads, Net Force, Sorry About Last Night, and Someone She Knows. Poto was played by Remy Avalira. We'll see him in seven more episodes. He was Moki on six episodes of Magnum P.I., he was also in the 2010 Hawaii Five-O, and he turned up in episodes of Big Hawaii, Jake and the Fat Man, and Birds of Paradise, and he was in the movie A Rock and a Hard Place. Sam Lee was played by Bunny Kahanamoku. This is the second of two episodes for him. We also saw him in Singapore File. 
And in an uncredited role, the ER doctor was played by Tommy Fujiwara. This is the second of 23 episodes for him, and we previously saw him in To Hell with Babe Ruth. And that is Blind Tiger. This is a great episode. Fabulous character study for McGarrett. When we see him thrown up against an obstacle that is not a criminal, it is not injustice, it is his own limitations in his current condition dealing with the blindness. We get to see a different side of Steve. We also see the 5-0 team rally around Steve and go after this person who wants to do him harm. And it's always great to see those episodes where we get to see the team working together, not necessarily under McGarrett's direction, but for him. So anytime we get to watch 5-0 help one of their own, it's going to be a good watch. That wasn't too bad, was it? Why ask me? You seem to know all the answers yourself. Episode 16, Bored, She Hung Herself, air date January 7th, 1970, directed by John Newland. This is the first of second episodes for him and written by Mel Goldberg. This is the six of 12 episodes for him. A woman is found hanged to death. The suspect is a young man who uses a yoga technique where someone hangs themselves but survives. But all is not what it appears. This summary is from Bill Koenig on IMDb because this is the lost episode of Hawaii Five-O. Now, according to the story, this episode aired January 7th in 1970. Within a couple weeks of the airing, apparently someone attempted the hanging technique that was shown in the episode and unfortunately died. As a result of this, CBS pulled the episode. It never re-ran. It is not available in syndication. It is not available for streaming and it is not available on any of the DVD packages. Now, as such, I have not been able to view this episode. I've never seen it. I've read the synopsis of it. I've read plot breakdowns of it, scene-by-scene breakdowns of it, but I've never actually seen it. Now, I know there are bootleg copies of it that float around, and sometimes they will appear on the internet, but I have not come across any of them, so I have never put this episode into my eyeballs. As such, I'm not going to really talk about this episode because I've never seen it. It's lost. So here's the deal. If I should ever happen to come across this episode so I can view it, I will immediately do an episode about it. I will do a little mini-sode about it. But until such time, my discussion of this episode also remains lost. I have to talk to you, Mrs. Mullen. He's not a murderer. You know that, Mr. McGarrett. No, I don't know that, Mrs. Miller. You're our friend, aren't you? Yes. Yes, I'm your friend. But I'm also a cop, and as a cop, I have to act on the evidence. I'm his mother. I don't act on evidence. You know John. You helped him. He's in the Navy because of you. And I'm here to help him now. The same reason. You want me to tell you where he is? Not as a friend, as a policeman? As both. Now, he's going to be found. I think he should be found by a friend, don't you? Is it also better that he be turned in by his own mother? If that's what it takes, yes. Yes. Episode 17, Run, Johnny, Run, 
air date January 14th, 1970, directed by Michael O'Hurley. This is the third of 36 for him, and written by Mel Goldberg. This is the seventh of 12 for him. A couple members of Shore Patrol, Kramer and Waters, are walking down the street when they spot John Mala, who is AWOL. They chase him through the streets to a sort of stadium where they split up in order to box him in. As Waters walks along the bleachers, John jumps him, and the two of them wrestle for Waters' gun. A shot rings out, and Waters falls to the ground, dead. Steve shows up to speak with John Mala's mother. It seems that John once stole a car, and instead of being sent to jail, Steve arranged for him to join the Navy. However, the Navy proved to be a different kind of jail for John, and he ended up going AWOL. According to his mother, John only fights when he's trapped. Steve wants to help John again. He's in big trouble, and it would be better for him to be taken in by a friend rather than the Navy. Hawaii doesn't have capital punishment, but the Navy does. Mom says she'll think about it. Kono brings Steve a late dinner at the office. Steve is waiting for Mrs. Mala's decision, and Kono isn't sure that she'll cooperate. A Hawaiian in trouble won't trust a Howley. But Steve thinks she'll help, and he's right. She sends along her youngest son, Tommy, who sneaks into Steve's office the next morning and wakes Steve up to tell him that he'll take him to John. The duo drives out to the sugarcane fields where John has been hiding. Both Tommy and Steve call for John, and he finally turns himself in. In jail, he explains to Steve why he went AWOL and swears the shooting was an accident. John's lawyer arrives and asks for his story. John admits to jumping waters, but he says he's only trying to keep from being shot. They were wrestling for the gun, and he heard the shot whistle past his head. He didn't mean to shoot him. Doc shows Steve the results of the autopsy. He tracked the bullet's path through Waters' body, but there's no bullet. Steve wants it and tells Chin Ho and Kono to find it. A call then comes in letting Steve know that John managed to overpower two guards, steal one of their guns, and escape. Steve and Danny go out to Mrs. Mala's house to find HPD already there, arresting a bunch of shore patrol, including Kramer. They'd gone out there looking for John and had nearly started a riot in the process. Steve and Commander Anderson exchange words about the incident in the commander's office. Steve is rightly pissed, and Anderson is more sympathetic to the emotions of the men. Mrs. Waters shows up, and Anderson offers his sympathies before introducing her to Steve. When she's told that Kramer nearly started a riot, she says that it's justifiable. After all, Kramer was her husband's best friend, and he watched him die. Steve asks Dano to get a rundown on Kramer before receiving word that John has been spotted, which sends him running out of the office. Meanwhile, Chin Ho and Kono search for the bullet at the scene. They find evidence of a ricochet on a trash can. A few recreations of the scene later, and they find the bullet embedded in a nearby wooden post. Steve arrives at the Naval Reserve where John Mala has been spotted to find Commander Anderson unleashing his shore patrol on the area. Steve warns Anderson that John is armed and he will fight, and it could very well cost Anderson several of his men. He asks for the chance to go after him, and after some consideration, Anderson allows it. Steve climbs the side of a steep hill calling for John, who eventually comes out of hiding. He tries to dissuade Steve from taking him in, including shooting at him a couple of times, but Steve is insistent. The two men end up brawling, Steve telling John that he'll have to kill him to get him to stop. The fight sends them rolling down the side of the hill and into the arms of Anderson and the shore patrol. Steve gets back to the office in need of a clean suit and a few bandages. He talks to the DA to find out where they stand since John was arrested on Navy property. Danny comes in with the info on Kramer, which is all pretty pristine except for one little thing. Kono then arrives with the found bullet. Fong is pretty sure it came from Waters' gun, but Doc is troubled by the lack of powder burns on the body. 
Steve does some anatomy and some geometry and realizes the equation adds up to someone other than John Mala being the shooter. And he thinks he knows who. Now, as I said at the beginning of this episode, you are liable to get background noise with the sound clips that I use. The sound clip I used at the beginning of this episode, I just want you to know that rooster is in the episode. It is not one of the chickens that lives across the street from me. I just want to clarify that. So this episode, we have Steve once again going out on a limb for someone that he believes in. And this is someone who has committed a crime, but he gave him the opportunity to avoid jail because I guess John Mala was only 18 when he stole this car. I have no idea how old John Mala is supposed to be now. He looks about 32. But however old he is, Steve got him into the Navy instead of going to jail, which was actually a pretty common practice back in the day. However, Navy didn't work out for John either, and he ends up going AWOL, which is what starts this whole problem. When we watch the initial confrontation, first of all, the shore patrol are not subtle at all. The two guys see John Mala, recognize John Mala as being AWOL. They're some distance apart on this crowded sidewalk, and one of them yells, Hey! And John takes off running when he sees that it's short patrol. Like, there's no subtlety involved whatsoever. John goes running. They chase him. It's kind of an exciting foot chase because they go up over a wall, jump down. They end up in, like, what looks like a baseball stadium because they're going through bleachers. You can see the field. They never get down on the field, but you can see them going through the bleachers. And at one point, I think Waters is under the bleachers and looks up and sees somebody walking around above him. And the fight takes place on the bleachers. John does jump Waters. Waters has his gun out for some reason. John jumps him. They wrestle over the gun. Now, the thing is, is what kind of never gets said. And to be fair, it kind of makes sense because John escapes before he really gets to go in depth of what exactly happened during this fight. Waters actually ends up going over the railing. They are now fighting over this gun while Waters is dangling over a drop. Because when he gets shot, Mala lets go of him and he falls to the ground down there. And part of the recreation issues is that they don't realize he's up on the bleachers. They think the ble- the fight took place down on the ground where Waters' body was found. And considering that in one hand, Waters has a gun in one hand, you can't imagine his grip on the railing to be that great. Mala could have probably just let go and he would have fallen and then he could have ran. But that's not how it happened. Waters ends up dead. So the scene with Steve talking to John Mala's mother instills a lot of sympathy for this character. He feels out of place. He feels like he has no place where he belongs. And Steve understands that, but also Steve is very big on personal responsibility. And he's like, where does this end? He stole a car. Instead of going to jail, he went to the Navy. And then he decides he doesn't want to be in the Navy. So he goes AWOL. He has to take responsibility for himself. And make sure to point out that if Steve catches him, it'll be for the Hawaii district attorney to deal with. And they don't have the capital punishment, brothers. If the Navy catches him, it's now a naval issue. He's probably going to hang. Because it does look pretty straightforward. The, the question is, even after Steve goes and gets John and brings him to jail, at the time, the question isn't so much whether or not John did this. It's, did he mean to do this? Because that's going to be the difference between murder one and a lesser murder charge. And of course, you can understand John's mother's hesitancy to help because McGarrett's helped once and look how it turned out. But I think the capital punishment idea kind of got through to her and so she sends Tommy. Now, what's interesting about Steve's office is that there's apparently through like the window, there might be a balcony or something. 
I don't know where Steve's office is in relation to the rest of the building, but there's obviously access through a window that you can get into Steve's office that kind of operates as a balcony, which we really haven't seen up until this point. Nobody's used it. We see Steve use it earlier that evening when Kono comes in and brings him dinner, which is very sweet. What are you doing up this late? You know, this Hawaiian never sleeps. Be the day. Steve? Yeah. That old Hawaiian lady is scared. She ain't about to turn her son in. Probably. I know her like I know my own mother. When push comes to shove, cops, Navy, all Howleys. And a Hawaiian in trouble will never trust a Howley. One of the troubles of the world, Connor. Sooner or later, I figure Mrs. Ma will help us. And if she says no, then it figures to be a long, long night. That is also how Tommy gets into the office without having to go through Jenny or anybody. He gets in through that way to wake up Steve, because Steve slept all night in his office waiting. Then you get a nice drive out through the cane fields to go get John, and you see, and Tommy the whole time is looking over his shoulder. And Steve's like, we're not being followed. You don't have to be so paranoid. And he's like, this is my brother's life. And that's pretty much when we get John in jail and he's talking to his lawyer. That's the crux of the issue is if it's going to be murder one or a lesser murder charge. Even with John's story, it's kind of not looking good. Which probably explains why John ended up escaping for, from jail. Poor John Mullet. You do have sympathy for him, but he keeps making the absolute most wrong choices in trying to extricate himself from this trouble. He just keeps making it worse. But there are things that are already starting to come to light that don't exactly add up, which at least we as the audience get to experience and realize that maybe something isn't quite going on the way we think it is. Because first of all, when, when John tells his story to the lawyer, he says that he heard the shot and something whizzed past his head. Well, if the shot went into waters, it wouldn't go whizzing past his head. We saw how the fight went. This is further complicated with the fact that when Doc shows the results of the autopsy and says the bullet entered the cranium here, it hit the clavicle and exited out his side, the way that Waters was hanging during the fight and where the gun was and everything, it would be really, really hard for him to be in a position to make that real. We can see that, but 5-0 doesn't necessarily know that, and Mala doesn't stick around long enough to go in depth with his story. So we're giving the heads up that there is more to this case than Steve just trying to track down this guy that he's helped once before and trying to keep him from getting killed. Because the shore patrol goes out to his house. There's like six of them, including Kramer. And they're obviously very reasonable while conducting their search for John Mala. You guys turn up five minutes later! We're to get you the joint! Plank by plank! So they all get busted by HPD and get taken back to the naval base where Steve confronts Commander Anderson, who's played by Jack King. I love Jack King because he so often turns up in roles. He's like Lance LeGault in a way. He turns up in roles where he's technically a good guy. So he's like, in this case, a Navy commander, quote unquote, good guy, but he's an antagonistic good guy. 
And so that's his role here. He's obviously going to defend his men and their emotions to Steve while Steve is like, this is completely unacceptable and I would probably have a real problem if one of my guys did this. He's not exactly comforted when Anderson says that everybody's in the brig. They're going to be punished. They'll be taken care of. And at that time, Mrs. Waters comes in and doesn't at first see Steve. Commander Anderson obviously offers his sympathies, his condolences, says he's trying to expedite the insurance, all of this stuff to try to help. And as she turns to leave, she spots Steve and he, Anderson introduces Steve and the subject of Mala escaping comes up, which she's obviously upset about. And she defends Kramer and the rest of the shore patrol because Kramer was her husband's best friend and he saw him shot down in front of him. How would you feel about this? So she thinks their actions are justified. But it's the mention of his name, him being Water's best friend, for whatever reason, puts something in Steve's head and he has Dano check him out. Now later when Dano comes back with his information, we don't get to see it. We don't actually know any of it other than the fact that Danny says that he's a real all-American boy, but there is something that he thinks Steve would find interesting. And he shows it to Steve, but we don't know what it is until later. And this is probably a good time for me to mention now that Kramer is played by a very young Christopher Walken. If you don't know who that is, I have no idea how we can relate to each other. But this is one of his earliest roles. We actually don't get to see too much of him outside of the initial opening scene. We see him get arrested with the rest of Shore Patrol. And then most of his stuff is at the very end. And it's Christopher Walken. He's amazing, as always. So if you want one reason to watch this episode, there you go. But in the meantime, they have to catch John Mala, and he gets word that he's been spotted on a naval base, and so Steve goes running out to try to stop Shore Patrol from getting him. Both because if the Navy arrests him on a naval reserve, that muddies the jurisdiction waters, but also because he's afraid of what will happen if Shore Patrol goes in after Mala. His mama said he'll fight if he's trapped, and he's now armed. And he relays this to Anderson because they're standing on a road and he's sending his shore patrol guys up this really steep hill because the mall, I guess, has been spotted on the top of it. And Steve is trying to stop this and he tells Anderson he's trapped, he's armed. Why do you think this is not going to end with the casualties other than Mala? This is going to end badly. And Steve invokes his own naval service by saying, when we were in the service, we were taught to do things a specific way to minimize the damage and minimize casualties. Did they stop teaching that? And so Anderson calls back his guys and lets Steve go up this hill. And then there's the confrontation between Steve and John Mala. John actually takes a couple shots at Steve to try to dissuade him from taking him in. He basically wants him to leave. He's willing to make his stand on this hill. He picked the hill he's willing to die on. And Steve won't let him give up that easily, and he won't, he won't, Steve won't give up on him. So what happens is Steve and John end up brawling on the top of this hill. Steve's getting in some of his licks, but he's taking a lot more than what he's dishing out. John Mala throws him down a few times, and Steve keeps getting back up and coming at him again. And he flat out says, you'll have to kill me to get me to stop. And John really doesn't want to hurt him. And he tells him that. But the two end up brawling. Now, it's shot in such a way that it's very, there's a lot of camera movement. It's very chaotic. Part of that, I think, is to cover up that uh, a stuntman was used for at least part of the fight. You can tell by the hair. Uh, Jack Lord's hair is not quite that curly. It looks like someone tried to straighten somebody's hair. They got the Mickey Dolan's treatment. Anyway, 
So part of that, I think, is to cover up that there's a stuntman used. But I think the other part, too, is that, I mean, it's a brawl. It's rough. It's tumble. It's vicious. Even though these two men like each other, for the most part, and respect each other, it's really like a physical battle of the wills. The thing is, is though it ends up that they both go tumbling down the side of the hill and basically right into Anderson and Shore Patrol. And that's how Mala gets taken in once again. And there's this great scene afterwards. Steve comes walking into the office and Ginny looks up and her eyes are huge because he has not stopped to change his clothes or clean up. He's come straight from the brawl to the office and he walks in and he's like, Ginny, I need a new suit. I need a new tie, the works. And I also need you to get the D, but first I need you to get me the DA on the phone, which Ginny does. But the look on her face is absolutely fantastic. Now, while Steve is brawling with Mala, we have Kono and Chin Ho looking for the bullet. And so they were at the baseball stadium where Water's body was found, looking around and they managed to find this trash can with a ricochet mark on it. So they try to figure out how the bullet would have exited and hit this trash can. And it takes them a couple of attempts. They have to move the trash can, first of all. They realize that the angle's not steep enough to cause this ricochet. So Chin Ho ends up getting up on the bleachers and they realize it. But the entire thing is played a bit humorously, which I love because I love Chin Ho and Kono together. I like it when they do play it a little on the more humorous side. But I have some real problems with this recreation of Waters' murder because they're trying to figure out the angle of this bullet. Kono takes out his gun and points it at Chin Ho. Hold it, brother. Is that gun loaded? Sure, it's loaded. So the whole time that they're doing these recreations, they're taking the bullets out of their revolvers, which is a good thing, but they're still pointing them at each other and pulling the trigger. Why? There is absolutely no need for that. You can literally just use your hand to mimic that you have a gun. Bang, bang. Use the sound effects. There's no potential horrible accident waiting to happen because we're not using actual firearms. I would expect more from two seasoned law enforcement officers, but I also know many seasoned law enforcement officers, and I guess I shouldn't be that surprised. But despite their methods, the recreation does work, and they do find this bullet, which they take into the office, and Che Fong examines it. He anticipates that it's coming from Water's gun, and that's when Steve gets the call from Doc that he can't make the evidence work with John's story, because if John and Waters were wrestling for the gun and his gun discharged and killed him, there should be powder burns and there's not. So it all starts to tie together. We've seen with John's own story about, the, about something whizzing past his head. We see with the angles and how the fight played out. Now we have the lack of powder burns. So Steve ends up using geometry. He does the angles on the body. He has this recreation scene set up on a chalkboard that he's able to move the figures of Mala and Waters and where the trash can is, and he rearranges things. Now, we already have seen that Chin Ho had to get up on the bleachers to make it work with the ricochet. Steve moves the two brawling figures up on the bleachers and realizes that it still doesn't work, that the bullet would have gone through Waters and ricocheted from that angle, but there's no way that Mala could be in the position to make that angle work. And so the deadly bullet would have had to come from someplace higher up. You've probably figured out by now who Steve suspects, but if you don't, 
This scene will probably help you figure it out. Susie, you... You can't stay in mourning forever. I know. Well, one thing, we, we got the guy who done it. We got him, not the civvies. That ought to make you feel better. Like I said, Christopher Walken's good, but he's no match for Steve McGarrett. Even though our guest cast stands no chance against Steve McGarrett, they are pretty great, so let's take a closer look at them. As I said, Walt Kramer is played by Christopher Walken. He won an Oscar for The Deer Hunter. He's probably better known for his movie career than his television career because his television career is rather short. He did show up in episodes of The Wonderful John Acton, The Motorola Television Hour, Deadline, Naked City, American Playhouse, Net Playhouse, and Kojak. He was in the movies The Sentinel, Heaven's Gate, Dead Zone, At Close Range, Biloxi Blues, Batman Returns, True Romance, Wayne's World 2, Pulp Fiction, Prophecy, Prophecy 2, Prophecy 3, Mouse Hunt, Ants, Sleepy Hollow, Blast from the Past, Joe Dirt 1 and 2, Geely, Man on Fire, The 2004 Stepford Wives, Wedding Crashers, Click, The 2007 Hairspray, Balls of Fury, Seven Psychopaths, Eddie the Eagle, and The War with Grandpa. And he was in the TV movies The Mind Snatchers, Valley Forge, Vendetta, and the Sarah Plain and Tall movies, which we had to watch in grade school. Still mad about that. Carl Anderson was played by Jack King. He was Chief Hollings on P.S. I Love You, General Fulbright on The A.T., Lieutenant Ted Quinlan on Riptide, Detective Chuck Morris on Dear Detective, Lieutenant Dan Ives on Mannix, Dr. Paul Graham on The Eleventh Hour, and Bo McLeod on The Tales of Wells Fargo. He also turned up in Highway Patrol, Bat Masterson, Sea Hunt, Perry Mason, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, Dan August, Mod Squad, Lassie, Ironside, Mission Impossible, Search, The Six Million Dollar Man, and The Bionic Woman, the Waltons, Little House on the Prairie, Kojak, Starsky and Hutch, Fantasy Island, Cannon, BJ and the Bear, Galactica 1980, The Fall Guy, Heart to Heart, Hardcastle and McCormick, and Wings. He was in the movies Die, Sister, Die, Where the Red Fern Grows, you know, the snake movie with Dirk Benedict, High Plains Drifter, and Play Misty for Me. And he was in the TV movies My Sister Hank, The Disappearance of Flight 412, Kiefer, and the Oklahoma City Dolls. John Mala was played by Nephi Hanneman. This is his second of 11 episodes. We also saw him in the first season episode, The Box. Sue Waters was played by Marcy Lafferty. She was billed as Marcy Brown. She turned up in episodes of Dan August, Medical Center, Barnaby Jones, Big Hawaii, Fantasy Island, and TJ Hooker. She had small roles in the movies Airplane 2, Star Trek, The Daytime Ended, an impulse, and she turned up in the TV movies Coffee, Tea, or Me, and Paper Man. Mrs. Mala was played by Myrtle Hilo. This is her first of three episodes. She also turned up in episodes of The Brian Keith Show. Tommy Mala was played by Remy Avalira. This is his second of eight episodes. We just saw him in Blind Tiger. Doc was played by Ted Thorpe. This is his third of five episodes. He was also in Leopard on the Rock and Bored She Hung Herself. Fred Waters was played by Bo Vandenecker. This is his fourth of 21 episodes. And Dave Bronstein, the lawyer, was played by Al Michaels. 
He was a sports announcer who frequently played himself. He turned up in the TV shows Life Goes On, Coach, Spin City, and Arliss. He was also in the movies Jerry Maguire and Basketball. He was the announcer for the Miracle on Ice hockey game at the 1980 Olympics between the U.S. and Russia. He began his announcing career calling games for the Hawaiian Islanders. He was the ABC Sports play-by-play announcer as well as as doing play-by-play for the Cincinnati Reds and the San Francisco Giants. And he was on the call during the 1989 World Series when the Loma Prieta earthquake struck during the game. And that is Run Johnny Run. Really do enjoy this episode because when it starts it seems pretty straightforward and then those little inconsistencies start to pop up and we take a hard left turn into the twist at the end. We get some awesome forensic happening. We get some good Shinho and Kono stuff. And... We have geometry solving a case. So the next time one of your kids asks, why do I have to learn this? It's so you might be able to get an innocent man off the hook for murder. That's all the reason you need to give this episode a watch. And that is episode 21 of Bookum Dano. Two really good episodes and one missing episode. Both Blind Tiger and Run Johnny Run are really good because, again, we're not doing the standard crime is commit committed, let's go find the bad guys. Yes, crimes are being committed. Yes, we're finding the bad guys. But we're doing it in different ways. There are different focuses happening. Blind Tiger, it's very much this character study with Stephen McGarrett dealing with his sudden blindness. And then in Run Johnny Run, we have what's supposed to be an open and shut case taking a turn. And like I said, if I can ever get a hold of Bored She Hung Herself, I will definitely give my thoughts on that in a little mini-sode for you guys. But until then, thanks for listening. Your ears are always appreciated. If you'd like to find me online, you could do that by going to my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano. And if you want to listen to me extol the virtues of Marion Ross and Christopher Walken in real time, you can do that by following me on Twitter at KikiWrites. So listen to your nurse, and don't go AWOL. Until next time, aloha. (laughs) 